Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we spoke to a candidate for Illinois governor about progressive values and his past mistakes, a group of teachers about the damage the Emanuel agenda is causing, and a magazine publisher about political discourse in the age of Trump. All this, plus the Trump Diaries and much more, only on the Lumpen Week in Review, June 23, 2017. Radio Free spoke to State Senator Daniel Biss, an Illinois gubernatorial candidate for 2018. Biss spoke about a progressive agenda, his own mistakes on pension reform, and the violence bedeviling Chicago. This extra-length excerpt is the first in a series of lumpen sit-downs with the 2018 candidates for Illinois governor. Radio Free airs every Tuesday drive time from 4 to 6 p.m. You're listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM, Lumpen Radio. This is John Daly, and we are joined now by gubernatorial candidate Senator Daniel Biss, who is coming to us live from the Capitol, where he's been called back on special session. Welcome. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Thank you for joining us, and and thank you for coming on. So you're the first of the candidates who's agreed to come on the show, and we do appreciate it. And you know, this is a low-power FM station, so one of the things that's very important to us is equal access and free airtime for all candidates so folks can and listeners can get to know the candidates that they'll be choosing uh, for their gubernatorial candidate. Well, that sounds, that sounds good to me. Thanks for including me in that. And I do want to just say one thing. Our special session starts tomorrow morning, so I'm actually still talking to you from uh, Chicago, but we'll be uh, heading down first thing in the morning. Well, thank you for joining us. And and so on your on your way down to the session. And but before we get started, we we do want to talk about what's happening uh, through the end of the month in Springfield. Uh, but first and foremost, we'd like to talk a little bit about uh, give us you know your background, why you decided to run uh, for governor, and and uh, you know what you think uh, the, some of the prescriptions are for the state here. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. You know, I, I got into politics from kind of a strange place. I was a math professor. I taught at the University of Chicago. Didn't imagine I was going to find myself doing this, but you know, six months after I started teaching, we were off to war in Iraq, and the country was spinning out of control, and it just felt dangerous and wrong. And there was this movement of people building up in the streets, trying to transform our society and take our country back. And I just felt like I had to be a part of it. And so I started going door to door and block to block, and became really, really obsessed with this idea that by organizing people into movements we could transform our society and create social justice. And that observation brought me into, into politics. And that's what I've been doing uh, since I first ran in 2008, since I joined the legislature in 2011, is trying to organize and empower people to build a state government that works for the rest of us. And so I decided to run for governor because we have a state that's falling apart. Bruce Rauner has led us to a situation where we are now on the precipice of two years without a budget, causing untold pain in all different respects, whether it's schools that may not open or students who are losing their access to tuition assistance or human service or healthcare providers who are shutting down. We have this terrible, terrible pain that's going on, but that's on the heels of like three decades of broken machine politics, a system that didn't really have people uh, represented adequately, didn't really have the decisions made in Springfield on behalf of most of us. And so what I see now is a moment that we can use to build a genuine people's movement to transform our state government, to build a state government that's going to work on behalf of the rest of us. And I feel like that's a generational opportunity for the state of Illinois, and I couldn't walk away from that, and that's what brought me into the race for governor. Senator, what is the single biggest issue, beyond obviously the one of the budget, that you 
you think that we need to address? I mean, there's so much stuff going on in Illinois. Your position papers note that people are leaving the state. We've yep. obviously here in the city of Chicago got a real problem with the funding of public schools. What What's the number one thing that you would, if you were elected, tackle immediately outside of actually, you know, getting a budget passed, which I, I think, think is obvious? Sure. Yep. Listen, here's the root cause. Here's the structural mistake in our government that got us to this moment. We are one of four states in the union that has a flat tax provision in the Constitution that says that we cannot ask someone making $20 million a year to pay a higher tax rate than someone making $20,000 a year. And that means our tax system is unfair, it's unjust, it punishes the middle class, it punishes the poor, it lets millionaires and billionaires off the hook. It also doesn't fund government properly. And because we have continued to be one of just a tiny handful of states that has this structure, we've continued to have one of the most unfair tax systems of any state in the union, as well as a state government that's dead flat broke. If we want to fix those two things, we have to amend the Constitution to allow a tax system that's progressive, a tax system that asks the person making $20 million a year to pay more than the person making $20,000 a year. And if we get that right, I believe we'll be in a situation uh, years from now, we're, when we'll look back and see that as a turning point that enabled us to have a functioning government. That's one of the things we've seen historically in the state is a divide between, uh, for lack of a better term, the North and the South, the city of Chicago yep. and part of the rest of the state. What are some of the things that you think that, that can bring Illinois together uh, in, in a common goal? It used to be road safety and things like education, um, but we're, we're kind of past that point a little bit. Well, I, I really, really agree with the premise of the question. We have a state that's been become more and more divided. Uh, it's divided politically in terms of who votes for which party where. And some people see it as divided culturally. And what we've been left with is a political system where the easiest thing for anybody to do is to pit regions against each other. So, for example, you mentioned education. Man, that ought to be the unifying theme, having a school system that funds high-quality public education in every corner of the state. Well, when we've tried to work on the school funding issue, Rauner has basically attacked any solution as a Chicago bailout, not because it singles out Chicago, but because it funds needy districts across the state, including but certainly not limited to Chicago. And so what we have to do is organize around a few principles. Number one, investment everywhere. There are communities in the city of Chicago and in the Chicago area and there are communities in rural downstate Illinois that have been the victims of generations of disinvestment, where schools have been closed, a manufacturing plant has left town, money has been pulled out of the neighborhood, and therefore opportunity has left. The solution to that is for us to step in and directly invest, directly work to create jobs. And it doesn't matter if that's on the west side of Chicago or the southernmost portion of Illinois. It's a similar problem, and it requires a similar solution. I'm running a campaign that goes to people in every corner of the state and says, listen, the state has walked away from parts of, of Illinois, and we have a responsibility to step back in and to invest everywhere. We also, like you said, have to focus on education. And finally, we have to think about the way we fund our government, about our tax system, because our tax system right now, much like our school funding system right now, much like a lot of our service provision, much like our tuition, is designed for the very rich by the very rich. And what they have done while benefiting from the system is they've been successful at pitting the rest of us against each other. We have to be very clear about the fact that a lot of us are losing right now in Illinois because somebody is winning. And instead of allowing those of us who are struggling to be divided, we have to unite, take back our government, and build a system of public policies that are going to work for the rest of us who've been ignored for way too long. Well, in 2013, uh, Senator, you sponsored a piece of legislation to reform uh, the pension situation in this state. 
That plan was ultimately struck down by the straight Supreme Court, was ruled unconstitutional. Where do you stand right now on pensions and reforming a system that is underfunded and obviously needs addressing? Yeah. Well, let me start here. That was a mistake. And that was uh, something that I've learned a lot from and that I regret. And I, I want you and your listeners to understand that, that that was, um, that was an important learning experience for me. And I wish I could have it back. Uh, but I also want to say a word about what I did take from it. I got into the legislature in 2011, and, and we had been cutting Medicaid and education and the choices that were presented to me by the elites who were in charge were, hey, you can either keep on cutting vital services for vulnerable people, or you can make changes to the pension system. And I was like, well, those are kind of bad options, but I guess I'll take what I at the time saw to be the less bad of the bad options and move forward with uh, pension changes. And what I should have done was to say, listen, those are bad options because they're not all the options. There are better choices out there. We have a tax system that is broken and unfair, that punishes the middle class and has allowed millionaires and billionaires to get away without paying their share for decades. And if we were to actually enact a working, fair tax system, we would be able to afford both services for the vulnerable and pension systems for middle class public servants. And I, I wish I had known that that was the right thing to do then, but I kind of got sucked into the choices presented to me. And I'm not going to make that mistake again. I'm going to always look at a set of bad options given to me by someone who might have self-interest and say, no, listen, we can be creative and find a better way forward. And so, for example, I mentioned to you that when the Senate passed the budget in late May, I didn't think it was a perfect budget. I didn't. I thought it was better than nothing, but not perfect. But I didn't just stop there. I said, wait a second, I've got a bill that would close what's called the carried interest tax loophole. This is a corrupt loophole that allows hedge fund and private equity billionaires to literally reclassify their income so they're pretending it's not income and getting a 20% tax cut. And so instead of just accepting a so-so budget, I said, let's put into it this new revenue source that asks people who can genuinely afford to pay to pay a tax that they should have been paying in the first place but haven't because of the kind of loopholes that people with money and influence have been able to put into the tax code. Let's put that into this budget package, make it more progressive, build in another better revenue source that taxes people who can afford to pay and let's not just accept the options given to us as all that we can possibly choose between. And so what I would say to, to people now is, listen, that was a mistake, and I understand, and I regret it, and I apologize for it. But more importantly, I've learned from it, and that's not a type of mistake I'm going to be making again. Now, to your other question, we're still sitting here on a huge pension debt, and it's a real crisis, and it's a crisis that we need to solve in a fair and constitutional way, and there are things that can be done. We could have a system of voluntary buyouts that wouldn't obligate anybody to do anything they didn't want to accept, but could save the system money and also give people a set of options they might prefer. We ought to be consolidating the 628 pension systems. This doesn't affect the city of Chicago, but in the rest of the state, every municipality has its own police and its own fire pension system. And that means we've got tiny pension systems more than any other state except for one resulting in tremendous inefficiency, low investment returns, high costs, high fees. If we consolidated them, we could save significant money and decrease our debt over time without changing anybody's benefit. And so I'm all about finding creative solutions that solve this problem without doing anything unconstitutional or unfair, but I've learned from my experiences that I'm not going to be trying to accept something that we shouldn't be accepting just because somebody else tells me that's the only thing we can do, that's the best option on the table. Senator, that brings up a point I wanted to ask you about. Uh, families, obviously, in the state of Illinois are under threat. 
if Republican efforts in the Senate to uh, unmake the Affordable Care Act come to pass. Uh, Democrats in the federal government do not appear to be able to block that move. It is likely that Illinois is going to lose its exchange system of health care. What would you do as governor to take care of the sick and vulnerable in this state? Uh, we used to have a high-risk pool in this state. I'm going to ask every candidate the same question. Would you look at a system to put that high-risk pool back in, or would you let uh, look to set up a system such as the state of California or the state of Massachusetts has to provide insurance to the citizens of this state? Um, well, l- let me start here. I know that the Republicans are moving to repeal the Affordable Care Act, but we shouldn't just call that a done deal. We need to fight tooth and nail. And obviously our senators are on the right side of the issue and the issues in the Senate now. But if, God forbid, the Senate does pass a bad bill rolling back the ACA, it's going to go back to the House and we need to fight hard there. By the way, Bruce Rauner should be standing up for this. The ACA is healthcare for a million people in Illinois. It's billions of dollars in our budget. It's eventually over 100,000 jobs. And so he should be fighting for it and telling the Republican members of the House from Illinois that they can't support a bill that would harm the state of Illinois in that way. Unfortunately, because the Affordable Care Act uh, includes a 3.8% surtax on investment income of the very rich, that means that had the Affordable Care Act been repealed before 2015, Rauner would have had a tax cut of up to $7 million and well, for whatever reason, he's not so willing to speak openly about the damage that ACA repeal would do to Illinois. So we need to push Rauner to push the state, uh, the, the U.S. representatives from Illinois, particularly on the Republican side, to be on the right side of this issue. But it's still a great question. What if we lose that battle and what if they uh, roll back uh, that health care? Well, listen, we have to step into the breach. And so as a state, uh, Obviously, a high-risk pool is a good place to start, but it's not enough. We can't allow people who have been covered either by the Medicaid expansion or by the exchanges to go without truly robust care. So I actually passed a bill that's right now on its way to Governor Rauner's desk that would say that you uh, cannot be discriminated against by a health insurance company in Illinois uh, based upon a pre-existing condition, even if the Affordable Care Act were to be repealed. That bill ought to be signed into law. We need to retain the Medicaid coverage even without the federal assistance, which, by the way, would be very expensive, which is why I always talk about fixing our tax system to make sure we can afford that. We've got to have a tax system that asks people who can afford to pay to finally pay their share and enable us to fund uh, Medicaid for the the, um, hundreds of thousands of people in Illinois who have benefited from the ACA Medicaid expansion and are now under threat. And finally, what I would say is this is not going to happen immediately, but what's the long-term vision for healthcare? We need to move to single payer. We need to move to single payer because the for-profit private health insurance industry is sitting right now like a vacuum cleaner on the system, sucking dollars out. And that makes it more expensive to cover people and more difficult to have truly universal, truly affordable coverage. Now, that's an expensive thing to do. We're not going to do it overnight in Illinois, but that's got to be the goal. That has to be the direction that we're moving and so we have to design our healthcare policy and also our tax policy in a way to make sure that we're, going to, we're on a path to be able to enact that, which is ultimately the best solution to make sure everybody in Illinois is truly given access to genuinely affordable care. Senator, I know we're running close on time. We really do appreciate you take time out of your day to, to speak to us here at Lumpen Radio. One question, though, I think that is on many people's minds here in Chicago. We do have an epidemic of violence in this city. Uh, Obviously, uh, we have made national news about this. Uh, 30 people obviously uh, shot over the Father's Day weekend here. What would you as governor do to try to address uh, an issue that has been stubborn and intractable in this city for too long? 
Well, let's start just by moving back up to the starting line. Let's get a budget. Let's get a budget that funds human service programs, that funds mental health treatment, substance abuse, housing, violence prevention programs, safe places for kids to go after school. Every one of the things I just mentioned has been cut, and then violence spiked, and we're supposed to act surprised. It's insulting. It's insulting. There is a direct connection between the failure of the state to have a budget and some of the violence in the city. And so that's step one. But obviously that's not anywhere near enough because we know it's not the entire cause. And frankly, before the budget crisis, violence was already way too high in the city of Chicago and elsewhere in Illinois. So next, we need to invest in job creation. We need to genuinely, in a direct way, in the communities that are most impacted by both unemployment and violence, employ people. Create jobs directly, whether it's in the field of construction, through a capital bill, or whether it's through employment in the school system or in other aspects of government. Government is an entity that can have a significant impact on economic opportunity. We've got to do that in the neighborhoods where a lack of economic opportunity and a kind of feeling of hopelessness has left violence as sometimes the only option for some young people. That's the next thing. Next, we have to work on sensible gun laws. The a great number of the violent crimes committed with guns in the city of Chicago are committed with guns that were purchased somewhere else, in Indiana or Wisconsin, which we can't control on the state level, or in the suburbs. In fact, in one of just a few stores in the suburbs that are known to supply a significant amount of guns to folks who uh, end up putting them in the hands of people who commit violent crimes. We don't right now have any state-level license for gun dealers in Illinois, which means that we have no mechanism to go to those few suburban gun stores and say, hey, you guys are part of the problem. Unless you clean your act up, we're going to pull your license. We passed a bill out of the Senate that I was a proud co-sponsor of that would create a state-level license for gun dealers to allow us to do just that. It's still waiting for a vote in the House, but we've got to pass that. It really will stem the flow of guns into the hands of people committing violent crimes in Chicago. And finally, finally, I think we do need to rethink our criminal justice policies and our policing. We need to rebuild trust between communities and police. We need to engage in real community policing, and we need to get rid of this adversarial culture that has left a gap into which it's easier for violent behavior to take root. I-94 spoke to a founder of The Point magazine, John Baskin, and the magazine's managing editor, Rachel Wiseman, about academic jargon, political discourse in the age of Trump, and why they don't print fiction. I-94, Lumpin' Radio's books and literature show, airs every Sunday at 10 a.m. This is I-94 and Lumpin' Radio. We're joined today by one of the founders and the managing editor of The Point magazine, a Chicago local magazine about ideas. And just before the break, we were talking about intellectual life. In a couple minutes, we're going to get to why they hate fiction so much. <laughs> the Point Magazine does not publish any fiction uh, at all. But, guys, we were talking a little bit about um, making ideas accessible for other people. Um, can we talk a little bit about why academic speech and academic thought and philosophy in general has gone away, in your opinion, from what used to be a much more uh, straightforward um, discourse between the intellectuals and kind of the everyday people. I mean, philosophy articles used to be published in Time Life, in Time and Life magazine. They used to be much more part of the mainstream. In France, that's still the case. You see it in Le Monde or, or Figaro. You see it in daily newspapers. Here, there seems to be this idea that discussions about what life is or discussions about how the mind works um, don't really relate to what's going on with people in downtown Bridgeport. Can you tell us you know, a little bit about why that might have happened? 
Well, it's a, I mean, it's a big topic. I think there's a, I mean, there's so many things uh, one could talk about. For me, something I noticed in academia myself, being more a literature student, was the degree to which the model of the sciences has come to sort of colonize the humanities, such that people doing philosophy or studying literature today think of themselves as um, researchers. You know, people ask you, how's your research going? So I'm not doing research. I'm reading a novel and telling you what I think (laughs) about it. But I think this like speaks to a much larger issue, which is the idea that in the humanities, in philosophy or, or literature, we are producing knowledge as opposed to engaging in a conversation um, about how to live, I think has had a huge impact on the way people in academia uh, consider what they're doing. And, and it accounts for some of the ways in which we now have, you know, just like the physics or chemistry, we have our own jargon for describing, you know, what what is happening in a novel. You're um, saying Terry Eagleton is a lot to answer for, is what you're saying. <laughs> is Terry Eagleton to blame? I don't know. Well, with, li- with literary theory and the entire idea of this uh, kind of scientific parsing of everything, and everything has to be based in theory as opposed to in reading for pleasure, and, and the idea that novels don't necessarily have hidden meanings beyond you know narrative subplots and things like that. Yes. Yeah, so I mean, literary theory is one manifestation of this, although it goes back even, I mean, I think it goes back even to the new critics um, even though I, you know, think they produce some amazing literary criticism, they started this idea in literary studies that what you need is a method. Here's the method. Here are the rules for how to read, and here's the rules for what counts as producing new knowledge in the area of literature. Now, the the, the people that followed them in the sort of postmodern literary world turned that against them. Here's a method that doesn't agree with it. It's completely opposed to the method you chose. But they kept the idea that what a literary critic's doing is sort of. Uh, participating in a specific, I would call it quasi-scientific method, although no one has actually produced any knowledge by this method. But, I mean, that's a controversial statement, but I would say, (laughs) um, you know, it doesn't build in the way science does, you know. We can still go and read a book and, you know. But anyway, so I think that it goes back to that. um, To me, that was sort of the break point in literary studies, and you could probably point to others and others of the humanities. Wasn't that also part of the fact, though, that was the the so-called professionalism of it? It was a capitalist tactic, in a way, to get people to do a certain thing, and that way you could get paid for it. You know what I mean? There was a a, a commodification and a codification of how you were going to teach literature and how you are going to study literature and how you are going to research literature. Right. Well, there's this deep question, right? Like, why do we pay anyone to study novels? You know, we can all read novels. On our own. We don't need an academic to tell us how to read novels. So I think there's always been this kind of crisis of confidence, particularly I'm speaking just about literary studies now, but among people that teach uh, literature of like, how do we justify what we do? Is this really important? Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately, they've never been able to just settle for the fact that we teach people how to read better, you know, or we contribute to a conversation about novels. That's never been enough. There's always needed to be some further justification. I got to jump in here because this is one of the things that I love about the point. There's, aside from the symposium, there are always essays and and reviews in each issue. And uh, there have been essays about several novelists, uh, Marilyn Robinson, um, Jim Coetzee, uh, Wallace, David Foster Wallace, you wrote about the first issue. Um, I'm coming up with a blank on the rest, but there are several more. And we've talked about this before on the show. Reading a novel is an extremely personal experience. And what the reviews and the essays and the point do for me is they 
they share that pers- that writer's personal experience, but they tend to be really erudite people, so they have a wide range of reading. They connect their personal experience to other books, which can be a common reference point to me, to things in their life, and um, it uh, it provides... Well, for one thing, when I first started liking books, and it, was, it wasn't until my mid-20s, I, I had this struggle with the way I felt when I read a book and when I finished it, which was this amazing, ineffable feeling, and then trying to talk about it with another person. It was frustrating. I almost wanted to stop reading because I couldn't share this thing yeah. with other people. And when I read books on theory, they're not sharing. They're not sharing literature with me. Um, and that's what those reviews in the point do for me. Well, touching on what Mike said, too, about the personal touch, I mean, half the authors that I've read, you know, in the past 10 years or, you know, stuff that I've read and essays by other authors, like, we're all big David Foster Wallace fans on the show, but, like, I just read William Gass' The Tunnel, which no one in their right mind would read unless, you know, David Foster Wallace recommended it. It's, it's an amazing book. It's incredibly difficult. It's 600 pages long, and um, I actually liked it. I don't like everything Gas has written, but uh, Markson was another author that I got oh, from David Wall. Markson, yeah. yeah who Oakley I love. Hall, of course, Oakley Hall. Yeah. Yeah. And Westerns, yeah. yeah and, he, and he has these, this very experimental but approachable way of writing. Um, and a lot of times when I read interviews with writers, they'll talk about books that they've read, and then I'll be like, oh, cool, write it down, and then I'll check that book. Sometimes it's yeah. a hit, sometimes mm-hmm. it's not. And when I read something like The Point, and you're talking about an author, I'll write down. Oh, God, it's gold. Yeah. And, Every then, you know, and then I order them from the library, buy them from the bookstore. And I, I think that part of literature, and, and Mike touched on it, is, is very personal, and you can't teach that. You know what I mean? You can't be like, right. hey, Mike, you're going to like this book because, you know, because I have this algorithm, you know, just that's going to make you like it, right. if that makes sense. Well, this is, yeah, I mean, it's much harder to talk about literature without a theory, you know? It's easy when you say, here are the steps, here's what I do. But I think, and I think, yeah, I mean, an example, I just was thinking while you were talking about Ben Jeffrey's essay in issue, uh, the last issue, issue 12, which was about reading Marilyn Robinson while he was dealing Mm -hmm. with his father's death. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was an incredible piece because, and I remember reading it and thinking, you know, this is how we read. We read a book, we compare it with what's going on in our own lives, we think about how it how it helps us think about something that we're dealing with. And that's often our deepest sort of emotional experiences with books are like that. And yet what percentage of criticism about literature, of writing about literature, actually captures that experience of sort of living and reading at the same time? So little of it. And I felt that and it it's not easy, you know, it's not easy to do. And I thought Ben did an amazing job of it. But that's I something I definitely, you know, we aspire toward with our with our essays about literature. This week on the Trump Diaries. The investigation hits home for the first time. The Democrats' brand is worse than Trump after a stinging defeat in Georgia. Spicy gets fat, and a family event planner now runs the nation's largest public housing department. These are the Trump Diaries. 
Day 147, June 15th. Special Counsel Robert Mueller is apparently investigating Trump for possible obstruction of justice. This is a major turning point into the investigation into Trump's ties with Russian interference, as it is the first time Trump has been directly tied to the investigation. Mueller is also looking for evidence of financial crimes among Trump's associates. Vice President Michael Pence today retained criminal defense counsel as well. And Trump's tweets about the matter essentially confirm that he is being investigated for obstruction of justice. Trump said, quote, they made up a phony collusion with the Russian story, found zero proof, so now they go for obstruction of justice on the phony story. Nice. You are witnessing the single greatest witch hunt in American political history. Trump also ranted about Hillary Clinton, alleging wrongly that Clinton had, quote, destroyed phones with a hammer, bleached emails, and had her husband meet with the attorney general. Aides blame Trump for the obstruction of justice probe, according to a story published in the Daily Beast. The president did this to himself and shot himself in the foot again with this cockamamie scheme to get Mueller to play ball by spreading rumors that Trump might fire the special counsel. Senators, White House aides, former prosecutors, and FBI veterans are urging Trump not to do it, as firing Mueller now would require him to personally direct the Department of Justice to do so, which could be shown that his purpose was, of course, to impede the investigation. And House Majority Whip Steve Scalise remains in critical condition after a shooting at a baseball field in a D.C. suburb. The suspect, James Hodgkinson, from Downstate, Illinois, obtained weapons legally despite a domestic assault charge. Hodgkinson volunteered for Bernie Sanders' campaign and wrote a number of social media posts against Donald Trump. Right-wing talk hosts have rushed to blame Democrats for the attack. Trump called yesterday for unity in a surprisingly measured address to the nation. In related news, a congressional hearing to debate gun legislation has been canceled until further notice in the wake of that shooting. The panel was supposed to debate the, quote, Sportsman's Heritage and Recreational Enhancement Act, which would actually make it easier to purchase silencers, transport guns across state lines, and use restrictions on armor-piercing bullets. The bill's sponsor was at that baseball practice. And almost 200 congressional Democrats are suing Trump over foreign business ties. They claim that Trump has ignored the Emoluments Clause of the Constitution, which prohibits federal officials from accepting gifts from foreign powers without congressional approval. The case is at least one of four pending lawsuits alleging that by retaining interest in a global business empire, Trump has violated the Foreign Emoluments Clause. And after Trump watched a story aired on CNN, a network he says he never watches, which detailed the devastating impact climate change has had on a small island in the Chesapeake Bay, he called the mayor of that island to inform him that everything would be just fine. Day 148, June 16th. Trump acknowledged publicly that he was under investigation, and then he attacked the integrity of the Justice Department official in charge of leading that probe. Trump declared he was being investigated for his decision to fire James Comey and accused Rod Rosenstein, the Deputy Attorney General, of leading a witch hunt. Rosenstein privately acknowledged he may have to recuse himself from the Russia investigation. He has told Associate Attorney General Rachel Brand, the Justice Department's new third-in-command, that if he were to recuse himself, she would have to step in and take over the probe. She was sworn in little more than a month ago. And Jared Kushner's finances and business dealings are now part of the Mueller investigation. Kushner joins the list of Trump associates, that includes Michael Flynn, Paul Manafort, and Carter Page, who are also under investigation by FBI agents and federal prosecutors. Kushner has agreed to discuss his Russian contacts with the Senate Intelligence Committee. And Trump today reversed crucial pieces of the Obama-era policy of engagement with Cuba, claiming it was, quote, a terrible and misguided deal. Effective immediately, I'm canceling the last administration's completely one-sided deal with Cuba, said Trump. That's not quite accurate. Trump left several Obama-era changes in place, and analysis say the move may be self-defeating. And Trump picked his family's event planner to run federal housing programs in New York. Lynn Patton will oversee the distribution of billions of taxpayer dollars despite having no housing experience, and claimed to have a law school degree the school claims she never earned. 
An American lobbyist representing Russian interests contradicted Jeff Sessions' sworn testimony about not having contacts with lobbyists working for Russian interests over the course of Trump's campaign. Richard Burt attended, quote, two dinners with groups of former Republican foreign policy officials and Senator Sessions. And in reversal of a campaign promise, Trump will not immediately eliminate protections for the so-called dreamers. A news release posted from the INS said directly, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals DACA program will remain in effect. White House aides cautioned Trump has not made up his mind on the future of that program. Day 149, June 17th. David A. Clark Jr., the polarizing Milwaukee County Sheriff, said he would not accept a senior position at the Homeland Security Department. Clark, who once claimed that the Islamic State and Black Lives Matter activists were forming an alliance to destroy America, turned that position down on Friday. Day 150, June 18th. The Wall Street Journal reported that personal information and voter profile data on 198 million American voters was stored on an unsecured server owned by Republican data analytics firm Deep Root. The folder links to, quote, dozens of sensitive and personally identifying data points making it possible to piece together a striking amount of detail on individual Americans specified by name. And Trump's lawyer claimed the president is not under investigation, but then walked that back, admitting he did not really know. Trump's personal attorney, Jay Sekulow, said that Trump has not been notified of any investigation. In related news, Jared Kushner is shaking up his own legal team. He's contacted high-powered criminal lawyers about potentially representing him in the wide-ranging investigation into Russia's influence on the 2016 election. And Mitch McConnell wants to force a health care vote by July 4th and is considering making even deeper cuts to Medicaid spending than the bill passed by the House. The Senate won't vote without a Congressional Budget Office score. The CBO, however, found that a House bill would cause 14 million fewer people to be enrolled in Medicaid over 10 years. Democrats are now trying to run out the clock by stalling on the bill. Day 151, June 19th. Democrats held the Senate floor this evening to spotlight the behind-the-scenes effort by Republicans to repeal Obamacare. Democrats criticized the closed-door meetings using a series of floor motion, inquiries, and lengthy speeches to highlight what Senate Democratic leader Chuck Schumer called, quote, the most glaring departure from normal legislative procedure that I've ever seen. And the Supreme Court says it will rule on if partisan gerrymandering violates the Constitution. The court has previously struck down racial gerrymandering, but never political. A lower court struck down a legislative map as an unconstitutional partisan gerrymander earlier this year. The case could reshape American politics. And Russia suspended the use of a military hotline between Washington and Moscow after the USA shot down a Syrian warplane. The Syrian aircraft dropped bombs near local ground forces supported by the United States and was downed by an F-18 in response. Russia also said tonight it may target U.S. aircraft in what would be a huge escalation in what is becoming a proxy war. And the Times reports that Trump's business ties in the Gulf raise questions about his allegiances. People in Qatar were quoted as saying the refusal to invest in a Trump hotel may now cost them the support of the United States. Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Qatar are feuding, and Trump has thrown his weight behind the two countries where he's done business, that would be the UAE and Saudi Arabia, raising new concerns about a conflict between his public role and his financial incentives. Qatar hosts America's largest airbase in that region. Day 152, June 20th. Sean Spicer is searching for his own replacement as he's expected to transition to a behind-the-scenes role. Spicer's deputy, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, has frequently replaced him with daily press briefings as Spicer has slowly retreated from public view over the last month. Spicer has often been caught in the middle between the press corps and Trump's erratic behavior. Steve Bannon was also quoted as saying, quote, Sean got fatter to explain Spicy's disappearing act, another mark of the low esteem Spicer has held in the White House. 
And Robert Mueller has added a witness-flipping expert to his team investigating Russian interference and possible obstruction of justice. Andrew Weissman is best known for gaining witness cooperation in the Enron investigation. He previously headed the Justice Department's criminal fraud unit. And the New York Times reported that a rift is growing between Senate Republicans over federal spending on Medicaid and the opioid epidemic. That rift is putting the plan to repeal Obamacare in doubt. Republicans appear to be deeply slashing Medicaid, which has been a bulwark against the growing national epidemic, and that appears to be costing them the support of senators in states hit particularly hard, such as Ohio, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia. Day 153, June 21st. Karen Handel easily won the special house election in Georgia on Tuesday, overcoming a torrent of liberal money to retain a seat the Republicans have controlled for 40 years. $55 million was spent on the race, making it the most expensive ever. For Democrats, there was no upside. They lost a race in a suburban district of Atlanta where Trump was deeply unpopular, but the Republicans successfully tied a political novice to Nancy Pelosi. Democrats are seething at the loss, with many now criticizing Pelosi. Representative Tim Ryan of Ohio said bluntly, our brand is worse than Trump. We can't just run against Trump. They're still running against Pelosi and still winning races. And it's still a problem. And multiple outlets are reporting that senior officials across the government were convinced in January that Michael Flynn was vulnerable to Russian blackmail. And yet, every day for three weeks, Flynn listened in on the nation's most sensitive intelligence. Remarkably, Flynn sat atop a national security apparatus despite its own conclusion that he was at risk of being compromised by a hostile foreign power. And Trump said this morning that China had not succeeded in getting North Korea to curb its nuclear and ballistic missile programs, a striking admission of failure. The statement delivered in a cavalier tweet came a day after the death of Otto Warmbier, the college student had been detained and brutalized in North Korea. Trump tweeted, quote, while I greatly appreciate the efforts of President Xi in China to help with North Korea, it has not worked out. At least I know China tried. Chinese officials said they were trying to gauge the meaning of the tweet this morning. And Trump's approval rating is now at a record low of 36% per SCBS News poll. In addition, 73% of Americans feel the current tone of politics is encouraging violence. 68% say the tone and level of civility in politics is getting worse. These are the Trump Diaries. Hitting left spoke to Chicago Teachers Union representatives Stacey Davis-Gates and Chris Barron about charter schools, Rahm Emanuel's plans to open a $75 million school in Englewood, and school vouchers' roots in Jim Crow era segregation. Hitting Left with the Klonsky Brothers airs every Friday at 11 a.m. Stacy's, by the way, uh, the what the, the political director, political and legislative, political and legislative director uh, for the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chris over here uh, to my right on the radio dial is a. Uh, the president of Shiax, which is the uh, Chicago uh, Association Alliance, hmm? Alliance, Chicago Alliance of Charter School Teachers. Welcome to the show, Stacy and Chris. Thanks. Thanks uh, for being here, guys. For sure. Thank you. Our mayor, uh, who's already become infamous uh, for closing uh, mass closing of schools back in what 2012. Now 2013. 2013. Excuse me, Stacy. Uh, now proposing uh, to close every high school in Englewood and, uh, and uh, to replace them with this uh, uh, mega high school, seven, I think it's $76 million mega high school. And uh, there's, you know, uh, I'm wondering where is the, uh, where's the pushback on this going to come from? Uh, maybe you can say something about that, Stacey. Where, where's the union uh, think about that? Well, I think you have to think about the lessons that they learned from 2013 and the price that the mayor paid in 2015. Um, so they're using different language. <clears throat> they're saying that they're consolidating. 
um, instead of saying that they're closing, that they're merging these high schools together because of the number of people who aren't in Inglewood anymore. So we have to be very careful about the story that they're giving us versus the empirical evidence. It still says nothing about all of the private options that have sprung up that, you know, take away from the public monies. So you have charter operators who have proliferated in that area in particular um, over the last decade in a way that is like de almost destroyed what was once, um, you know, an area in which, you know, you had Harper, um, you have Har- you, Robeson, you have Robinson, yeah. you have Inglewood, you have Hope, and, and, and you see, like, the, the students having this, um, this theory of choice, right, and, and then being pushed back into the high schools once the people in those spaces say, well, you know, they're a little too difficult to educate. Um, but one of the things I think that where the pushback, I think, has to come from in this iteration of school closing is that it has to be about what will we see in Inglewood in the next 10 to 20 years? right? You got a Whole Foods anchor in that space. You got a new Kennedy King in that space. You got a Starbucks in that space. You have um, symbols of gentrification all around you. You have these symbols of gentrification all around you. You can um, drive or walk down blocks in Inglewood and the entire block is vacant. Maybe a house there, maybe two homes there. So what is the plan for Inglewood and how does this particular plan factor into it? That's the first question. The second question that you have to ask is if you're going to build an $80 million um, building, how do you fund this, the, the types of curriculum, the types of classes, the types of staffing that you'll need to make it a world-class destination for the people who live in that community? So you have two very hard questions for the city to answer in this endeavor. And three, is this just like most things in this um, political space, is that the closer we get to 2019, the more red ribbons that will be cut, the more groundbreakings that we'll see as you march to, you know, the next election cycle. But it's hard hard to oppose a new new school. in the community, I mean, people, people. I think people are happy to see a new school uh, get built there, and it's a public school. I'm not sure if that's correct. Yeah. I think that the press that we've gotten has come mainly from the city and how they orchestrate. So the CAC, the the Inglewood CAC, which is um, basically a creation of the Chicago Public Schools, where what they is go a CAC, and um, community action um, council is where they go and find people who aren't too controversial but will ask some challenging questions to sit in a space and figure out, like, next steps. So you have to interrogate, like, who's on the CAC, what are their connections to the power structure in the city. Um, And then finally, who hasn't been at the table? I can tell you that the teachers' union, we haven't been at the table. There was no conversation. We received the press announcement like everyone received the press announcement. Little known fact, when I first moved to Chicago, my first job was teaching at Inglewood High School. The same year Arnie Duncan came over and basically said, we're closing you down. So, you know, I have some equity, I would say, in how this process has worked in Inglewood before. And when that decision was made, the community was promised things then that have never materialized. Yeah. They don't have a good track record. That was with true this. at Robeson too. I, w- I was there in '96, I think it was, and there was all kind of a reform mm-hmm. going on. Uh, 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 
but uh, all of the, you know they put they brought in uh, I think they brought in some charter schools they brought in some uh, other other things and uh, now they're they're just boarding it up and, and shutting it down and uh, uh, but I ask my, a dumb the, question here yeah isn't there are it, no dumb questions well isn't it cheaper any? though if you're going to build an eighty to hundred million I saw it was a hundred million dollar high school actually if you're going to spend that much money on a new building why don't you just spend ten million dollars to fix up the other ten can't cut a ribbon on that well, why not can't you uh, I mean we have Groundbreaking is we're doing the street in front of our studio right now. I'm sure we're going to have. A I, I think it's a that. good point. You but know, I mean, why, why don't we spend yeah. the money on the buildings that exist and keep the, the the buildings in the community and the 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 historic ties that have been between the neighborhood and the, the school buildings that they you know have. back in '96 uh, uh, we had the small schools workshop working uh, in schools like Robeson and Harper Clemente. and Dusabo, and uh, we were trying to uh, bring resources and create smaller learning communities there. But now, and the board uh, actually was in support of that at that time, but now everything's changed. Uh, now you have uh, the bigger, the better. Uh, Little economies known fact. of scale. Yeah. Little known fact, because the learning communities are smaller and the students still have the challenges that most students who exist in impoverished environments come to school with, that there have been substantial gains made in how the students are relating to each other in as much as like the discipline issues that were once an issue but are no longer an issue. Restorative justice practices have flourished in Inglewood because of the smaller learning communities, the smaller classrooms. So even to the extent that we're talking about where research tells us that students who need more um, require a smaller learning environment. So what we've said, Chicago, what the, the powers that be in Chicago have basically said is that actually research doesn't matter. That's because right. this is what we would like to do because we think it gives a great headline or an awesome press release. And that's basically how school policy has operated at least since 2011. So they're, so they're ignoring all the research. You know, for example, the, the research that I have done my, did myself back at that time, uh, and I wrote many, uh, several books and, and several articles about this, showed that in the smaller learning communities, learning environments and small schools, Violence, to get back to the original topic, uh, was reduced by 10 or 12 times, serious violent incidents. Uh, but that's all been thrown out, the, thrown out the door now that we've gone to, uh, you know, big scale, everything. But wouldn't, wouldn't yeah. we have learned from our own history with public housing when we warehoused people? It, it made crime flourish. And instead of the, the idea of public housing when it was first, was first put in was to Gave, give a new space to communities that didn't have one. And instead, it turned into basically a warehouse. Well, so what it, what it yeah. sounds to me is we're talking about putting kids on a track to be warehoused their entire life. Warehoused in public housing, warehoused in an industrial school, and then warehoused in incarceration. That yeah. doesn't make a lot of sense. Warehousing for some. Right. And then uh, selective enrollment, uh, uh, possibly some charter schools, uh, a two-tier educational system being – uh, being uh, rebuilt, reinforced. Uh, you're shaking your head, Chris. Chris Barron, uh, the president of Shiax. So, uh, what's your what's your take on this, Chris? Well, I hear that two tier stuff. It's, uh, I mean, with charter schools, it's like they're trying to make a, a second tier of the profession of teaching, right? Where you know you get a job, uh, you have got no due process. You know, unless you fight for a union, often you might get fired for that. You know, you get the benefits and the compensation is far less, even when you win a contract where our contracts are still significantly 
uh, far behind the community standard, which is the Chicago Teachers Union contract. Yeah, when we first started the original charter schools in Chicago, uh, back in the, uh, you know, I'd say uh, late 90s, or early 2000s, uh, these were teacher-led charter schools. Uh, they, uh, they were started by teachers themselves and union teachers, members of the Chicago Teachers Union. And the idea was to create uh, some space and more autonomy and empower teachers to be able to engage in more uh, innovative teaching practices and to have more control over their classrooms. And, uh, but now it seems like that's all been flipped. Uh, the, the, the charter schools we have now are part of these big networks of schools run by corporate boards. And it seems like te uh, teaching has almost, in those schools has almost been reduced to uh, the level of a delivery clerk, uh, you know, maybe monitoring uh, some computer screens or administering tests I think is that is that resonate with you well I, it, not in like the the you know the the brick and mortar charter schools I think it, you know you walk into a, a brick and mortar charter school and it's probably not gonna look much different from a, a district school uh, you yeah. know you got a group of students the same students that CPS t teachers teach um, but the irony was they weren't supposed to look like ordinary Chicago schools they were supposed to be engaged in some kind of new innovative uh, practices they could share with Chicago public schools. Right. Well, that's the problem. The only innovation has really been paying teachers less and busting unions. Yeah. That's the problem. Bad at Sports spoke to painter and teacher Candida Alvarez. Alvarez's work is currently being exhibited at the Cultural Center as part of the city's year of public art. In this clip, she discusses that show and how Comme des Carsons still doesn't have an outlet in Chicago. Bad at Sports airs every Wednesday at 11. Candida, welcome to Bad at Sports Center. Uh, rumor has it you've got a show up at the Chicago Cultural Center. Yes, I do. Um, <laughs> An was art the, show? Was, yeah, was the rumor uh, on the cover of the Chicago Reader? <laughs> no, it wasn't on the cover. It was, on the, it was inside, but a beautiful photograph. Oh, that photo yeah. was really gorgeous. Yes, it was quite beautiful. But I just wanted to say, to respond to your first question, I'm not a graduate of the uh, SAIC. <laughs> Uh, I graduated from Yale, so school of art. a little different. So just slightly to, fancier. I just wanted to say, but not that. when I went to graduate school there. No, <laughs> years ago. But tell us about the show. This is a, it's a big deal. It's a, it's it's a wonderful show. It's uh, it was curated by Terry Myers. Um, it's about what five thousand square feet up there. It's monster, like five hundred thousand square feet right? gallery of the cultural center. <laughs> There's about um, sixty paintings, a little bit less. Uh, we refer to it as an extended painting show. It's not a survey. There's a lot of work missing from that show. Um, mostly a lot of my drawings because I do a lot of that. Um, the uh, trim piece that um, is there is a very new piece. It was a way to hold all the the pieces together in my mind and to bring the scale. When you together. say trim piece, you mean this sort of painting that is both architectural yes. and painting that is sort of lined the floor of the space. Yes, that's right. It's a digital print, actually, of a painting that I reconstructed. And it also uh, is a nod to Ray Kawakubo um, since I recently had a... Uh, collaboration with her um, and so that was one of the uh, paintings that she used for um, some of her textiles that are I don't know if you know about that but uh, I've worked on um, the men's couture with her and uh, boy shirts that's about to come out 
Um, no, tell us more. I, 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 come to Garrison. I, yeah, come to Garrison. Whatever. I'm, uh, I from thought, Canada. Our, yeah, if you're from, from Canada, don't you speak French? I, as Jesse quite rightly pointed out, I'm from Alberta where we speak hick. Oh, got it. I'm no, I can't even we say. We do that too. <laughs> I can't even. You said Ray Kuwabo like it was the first, like it was the most natural. Ray Kabakubo. Ray Kabakubo. Well, she's showing at the Met she, right uh, now, yes. which is pretty awesome. I mean, she got my work. She found me online, believe it or not. Um, Where it, real artists find other real Right, artists. right. And uh, <laughs> I was shocked and surprised, a bit in disbelief. Um, Were you like, is this actually a spam exactly, message from exactly. Nigeria? Like, That's this? exactly right. And I called up Terry Myers. I said, what do you think? You think this is spam or what? And he's like, <laughs> no, it's real. And... Um, so uh, basically, I just uh, sent some images. Uh, she really got my work, you know. And so I was really, really, I was quite honored. And and she chose six six pa- six paintings and drawings. And so um, it's kind of cool to see them on bodies. So they're being made into textiles. They're made, and they're, they're about m- to be shipped. Already uh, made into. Textiles. They're out in the world now. Yes. And so the the paintings that became the pattern for the textile then are re emerging as the um as the trim piece as the source for that new piece that i created i right. see so and i see this in the in the fashion side of things before this collaboration i mean is this something you've been thinking about before is how you can no no so but it's a wonderful way to think about the work getting out into the world and so a lot of my work um has i source bodies and spaces between bodies uh, and so um, it was just the, the, the whole idea of it was uh, was so exciting, right? It it gives it another dimension to the work. So um, I'm also uh, working on another project that where I'm working digitally as well. You know, sourcing my own images, my own paintings, which is really fun to create new works. And um, I love uh, um, really juxtaposing. Um, images together, you know, multiple panels. I've been doing that for a long time. Um, and so it's kind of a natural thing for me to do. And so soon uh, there will be a public project um, in Chicago to be announced very soon. <laughs> so, so just real quick. so if We people, love announcing things, yeah. just, just in so, case just you so ever want to. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on there. So just so, so our listeners know uh, how to find this stuff. So how long is the show up at the Cultural Center? The show closes August 6th. August 6th. You got, so people have time if they're curious. Uh, and then, Although not too much time. Do not wait. Uh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, don't wait. But wait, you know. Show. You might want to go wait? back a second time. Uh, and then the clothing. Where can people find out information about Come that? Come de Garçon, New York, um, anywhere else in the world. We don't have Come de Garçon here, at, you know, a major store Yet. here. Um, <laughs> so it's men's couture and boy shirts. You can go online. Uh, t- you know, there was a lot of articles written about it. Uh, I did go to Paris, it's, which was great, ooh. in January with my son. We tr- we we touched the clothes, tried them on. It was real. So 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 they're, so they're for ohms, right? Yeah. Is that how you say it? Om 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 So these paintings that then became transmutated into all these other elements. Were those completed before you knew these other projects? Did you just pull from back work, or did you compose specifically paintings that would then be translated into garments and then into other? Um... No, 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 no. I just make my work. I just, I just, I just have a studio practice. Kinsey does like take it or leave That's it. That's right, exactly. I don't do anything for any. I just do it for myself. 
Okay. And so if you like it, we could. I feel as though there's a nugget of advice and truth in that. Right. <laughs> uh, no, I don't. No, I didn't design for her. I had the work. She chose the work and she created the textiles. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is edited and engineered by Logan Bay. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpen Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com.